Hey, this is Adam. This is Mike. And this is David. From Super Best Friends Video Game Sleepover. We make a fortnightly video game podcast. Fortnite means every two weeks. Covering gaming news, game reviews. I give it five out of five tacos. And whatever crazy audience tweets come in. And sometimes celebrities like Arnold even stop by to sing karaoke. Oh, we, oh, I look just like Buzzy Each episode, we feature one burning topic, game dev interview, or super guest friend from the world of gaming. Check us out on the HP Video Game Podcast Network or on sbfvgs.com. I don't care about that. Wow. Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary and narrative style podcast about video games and the video game industry as they were in the past, and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 19, Premier Manager. Today, in the football management genre, there's really only one game that matters. One game that commands all of the attention. Sports Interactive's Football Manager franchise rules the roost with a hardcore, ridiculously in-depth simulation of all the systems and processes around managing a professional soccer team. From any of 100-plus divisions across more than 50 leagues around the world. It covers not just match tactics and transfers, which alone possess a massive amount of systemic complexity in the game, for those willing to dive all the way into the simulation, but also micromanaging of individual player and staff relationships, team talks, media handling, scouting, youth and reserve teams, and loads more, with options to offload some of this stuff to a computer-controlled assistant manager, if you're willing to trust them. If all this sounds kind of bewildering or massively time-consuming, it is. And it's precisely why there are still people playing older versions of the game from 20-odd years ago, sometimes with their own custom data updates. But that is a story for another time. The reality is that Football Manager, with its desktop and mildly streamlined tablet and mobile flavors, and its millions of fans, has become the standard bearer. Its genre is the equivalent to NBA 2K or Grand Theft Auto or Forza, the game against which everything else is compared and measured. With an enormous database of tens of thousands of footballers from around the world that's compiled by a massive global network of researchers and scouts, Professional clubs and managers even use it to devise new tactics and find potential new signings. And aside from a handful of free-to-play with microtransactions alternatives, Football Manager is pretty much the only option for budding virtual managers. But that's now. If you roll back the clock to the early 1990s or even to the late 90s, you'll find a very different picture. Back then, the genre looked much less settled. There were dozens of options for people keen to do a spot of sports management on their computer or game console. The vast majority of these, of course, being dedicated to soccer. Association football. The round ball game obsessed over everywhere but America. Where, I might add, a smattering of NFL and baseball-themed management and coaching games found modest success at one time or another. In Europe... And specifically in the UK, where we lay our scene, football management was the leading computer game genre of the era. At pretty much any moment, you'd have at least one, and usually a few, 
of the top 10 best-selling games be dedicated to managing a football club? Games like On the Ball, Premier Manager, Tactical Manager, First Division Manager, Championship Manager, which was the forebear to today's Football Manager series, Match of the Day, Player Manager, Club Soccer, The Manager, Ultimate Soccer Manager, and so, so many more. Our story here focuses on one series in particular, Premier Manager, and how its rise and fall ties into the larger movements of the genre. A genre that, as I said, has lost its diversity, if not its luster, over some 20, 25 years or so of consolidation. We begin with an unreleased game called Touchline Manager. It put you in charge of a team from the fifth and lowest tier of professional football in England, the Conference League, and tasked you with guiding them up through the divisions in an effort to reach the Premier League and become the best team in England. It had been developed on spec by a little company called Realms of Fantasy, whose founder John Atkinson, a former freelance programmer, had also created the four-player Amstrad CPC game Multiplayer Soccer Manager in 1990. Now that game, in what will sound awfully familiar, involved trying to take a team from the bottom to the top of the English Football League, along the way fiddling with tactics and team selection and stadium improvements and doing some wheeling and dealing on the transfer market. So Touchline Manager was effectively an enhanced version of that, for Amiga rather than Amstrad, and with an added somewhat rudimentary graphical match engine, which I'll come back to shortly. Realms of Fantasy sent it out to several publishers in the hopes that one of them would be interested, and as luck would have it, the game soon landed in the slush pile of a fellow named Tony Casson, who worked in Gremlin Graphics Software's Quality Assurance Department. Now, Tony, it turns out, was a big fan of football management games. He'd particularly loved some of the older titles in the genre, 1980s stalwarts like the Double and Treble Champions. Tony was the perfect person to evaluate this touchline manager game for a possible publishing deal, because he would see it for what it was, a simple and accessible throwback to the early years of the genre, with some rough edges of course, but also a number of new bells and whistles to make it feel fresh rather than dated. And indeed, he later said in an interview that he'd not seen a game like it for ages. His colleagues weren't so sure, and one of them even likened the game to watching a spreadsheet. But Gremlin soon made a deal to publish it anyway, on the proviso that Realms of Fantasy made various improvements. In turn, Realms of Fantasy boss John Atkinson, who was designer and programmer on the game, ignored advice to take a royalty-based deal, because they had a potential hit on their hands. And instead, he insisted on a lump sum payment for his work. The final result, retitled Premier Manager, hit Amiga computers in late 1992 and made its way to Atari ST and MS-DOS soon after. And it made a rapid run for the soccer management crown. Magazine critics loved that Premier Manager offered strong depth without getting lost in the details. You won't find a better footy management game wrote Amiga User International's reviewer. Well, Amiga Action called it necessary, vital, fulfilling, slickly presented and engrossing to the very last detail. Only the match engine seemed to divide the critics. Some bemoaned the fact that it basically consisted of watching a tiny soccer ball move 
back and forth across the scroll bar-sized text field, with key moments accentuated by canned tackling, shooting, goal-scoring, and goal-saving animations, displayed in a, a window right alongside this scroll bar field that is about the size of a postage stamp, which sadly left a good half of the screen basically empty. On the plus side, though, at least Premier Manager had some kind of graphical match play. A lot of games didn't. And it would actually get really exciting in a tight contest to see the ball edging this way and that as both teams tried to break forward for a chance at a winning goal. And fans of the genre obviously thought so too, because Premier Manager rocketed up the sales charts and stayed there for months, ratcheting up a six-figure tally of sales along the way. It wasn't the only soccer management game up there. British football fans seemingly just they couldn't get enough of the genre whatever the package it came in. The secret here was that these competing games mostly hit different sub-markets, with different approaches and styles and emphases, and in some cases straight-up varying philosophies about how a football management game should work. Should it revolve purely around match day? Or be more about player and team management? Or perhaps take a broader club management approach, a sort of football version of a theme park game? where you play a director who can fit out a stadium and set food and drink prices and everything in between? And should it be deep and hyper-detailed, aiming to capture its chosen style to the greatest possible extent? Or perhaps be more shallow and simple, more of a light time killer, a sort of a progenitor to the idle games of today? Or more commonly, would it fit somewhere in between those two extremes? In the case of Premier Manager, it was immediacy and flavour that took priority. So you'd get a taste of everything and have some stats and tactics and business elements to sink your teeth into, but not so much that it'd get bogged down anywhere. Its biggest long-term competitor, Championship Manager, by contrast was all about depth, about simulation and detail and realism, and reams and reams of statistics, immediacy be damned. To such an extreme, I might add, that you'd click to start a new career, or to end the season, and then wait for as long as several hours, depending on the specs of your computer, as the game configured all the computer-controlled managers and their teams, just so that you could stare at a bunch of spreadsheets and read, not watch, the highlights of a match. Which, as a side note, was actually a lot more interesting than it sounds, because the extra detail they could work into the commentary by being text-only created a great sense of immersion, as opposed to that vague imaginative potential that Premier Manager's ball-in-a-scroll-bar action provided. We'll continue with the story of Premier Manager's rise and fall right after this short break. This episode of The Life and Times of Video Games was made possible by my supporters on Patreon. And the topic was chosen by my executive producer-level backer, Simon Moss. The show takes a huge amount of effort on my part to make. So if you like what I'm doing here, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. It helps me to carve out more time to make new episodes. And it gets you some bonus stuff, like backer-only soundbites, research notes, plus episode transcripts. Head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon for more info. Even just a few dollars a month goes a long way towards making this show sustainable in the long term. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. 
Hey I'm Chris Wilson. And I'm Dylan Gregory. And we host Backstage Gaming, a weekly podcast about video games and storytelling. We both play pretend professionally. Sometimes on stage with other people. And sometimes alone in a soundproof room. So join us every Monday while we talk about games, acting, and how a story comes together. Backstage Gaming. Dramatic takes on your favorite games. Part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. Now let's get back to the show. As is the norm when you have a hit game, Gremlin soon ordered a Premier Manager's sequel. This time, developer John Atkinson added player contracts, weather, more statistics, a few new tactical options, an extra couple of player attributes, ball control and preferred foot, more stadium expansion options with some really cool graphics to help you visualize your new plastic seats and floodlights and so on. And don't knock it, it was kind of fun. Plus expanded training, so you could now choose an intensity as well as category for each player's training. And various other aesthetic improvements. Premier Manager 2's biggest new feature, though, was almost certainly its match day experience. Those tiny animations from the first game's match engine were swapped out for a giant scoreboard that, well, it showed basically the same thing, but way bigger and better. The scoreboard graphics filled a full half of the screen, with the other half left for some key statistics and match info. And you'd also get little commentary snippets, just a, a player name and a verb, like Wilson takes a shot or Lucchetti rides a tackle, to add a bit of detail and flavour, all about the flavour, to match elements as that little ball slides back and forth across the scroll bar field. These new features and the various improvements to the user interface added together to turn Premier Manager from one of the better football management games to the best in the genre. Blessed with enough detail to keep the statistics nerds happy, without losing any of the immediacy of its predecessor. A game that possessed such great rhythm that it became hard to stop playing. You'd fall into the trap of just one more week in the same way that the Civilization games are famous for ensnaring players in a perpetual one-more-turn time loop. I once wrote in a retrospective for Eurogamer that Premier Manager 2 was the last hurrah for the old-school football management style. The last to treat this virtual rendition of a real-life job as something playful and fun and instantly accessible. And that only ever tried to be semi-realistic. Because there's nothing realistic about taking a team of no-names and guiding them up to the top division in just a handful of seasons. But it sure is fun. Here was a game about the flows of football. A light-hearted simulation of the moment-to-moment magic of the beautiful game where actual tactical analysis is largely irrelevant. Your team selection is a puzzle, albeit quite a hard one, where the right answer is always to go with the highest numbers, to get the most stars in your team rating, coupled with whatever instructions for passing, tackling, marking, shooting and playstyle seem to work best together. It was brilliant, and it dominated the sales charts, even reaching number two on the Christmas bestsellers. 
Critics were divided over whether Premier Manager or Championship Manager did the genre better, but fans made it clear that with this sequel, Premier Manager was number one. Until it wasn't. The march of technology wouldn't be particularly kind to Premier Manager. Its third installment, released in 1995, retained the user-friendly interface, but eschewed the simplicity of that scoreboard and scrollbar pairing for a complex, zoomed-out, isometric 2D match engine that divided the field into 15 zones and animated the ball and players as they moved around. With myriad new tactical options, including individual player instructions. John Atkinson noted in an interview that these changes came directly from fan feedback. But for me, this was the series' big mistake. The point of inflection where it all started to go wrong, where Championship Manager began to edge ahead. Getting a stronger visual element to the match engine was not itself a bad idea. That's where most of the excitement comes from in these games. But the way they went about it compromised the game's identity. Premier Manager was the accessible, friendly soccer management option. The game that you could learn how to play in half an hour and blast through a season in a few hours. The game you played for the glory and the thrills of football management. Not the nitty-gritty tinkering or the frustrations of a team that won't play the way you want, and definitely not to watch two simulated professional teams go at it like a bunch of eight-year-olds chasing the ball in circles. The new match engine wasn't quite a disaster, but it was weak. It exposed the weaknesses in the simulation, in the one area where people are sure to notice. It was a bridge too far for the technology of the time, and it really took a hit out of Premier Manager's reputation. They still had the gloss, the gleam, the shine, the sales that would hold off the challenge of Championship Manager at retail. But Championship Manager's first major sequel piled on so many realism and interface and match day commentary improvements that it was hard to ignore the flaws of Premier Manager 3's match engine. All was not lost yet. This was salvageable, but Gremlin would have to proceed without John Atkinson and Realms of Fantasy, as their involvement with the series ended here. John would later contribute to a couple of other football management games, but his future lay in programming work on other genres. Now, how will the manager move things around to account for that departure? Spanish studio Dynamic Multimedia took over Premier Manager development, whereupon Gremlin published a reskinned, localized version of their incredibly popular PC Football 5 which was actually the best-selling football management game in the world at the time. And at 400,000 sales, plus another couple of hundred thousand for localized versions in other countries, it was one of the most popular computer games. Full stop. This England-focused version, titled Premier Manager 97, had none of the look and only a little of the feel of the Premier Managers before it. But it at least shared its forebears' emphasis on the experience rather than the simulation. And it also sported a gorgeous, not terrible, but not particularly good either, 3D match engine. Sales were once again excellent, and critics gave it a decent rap. And so it looked as though 
we might have a permanent divide in the genre. The more accessible, fun, deep enough, but slightly arcadey Premier Manager series pitted against the seemingly impenetrable, hyper-detailed, hardcore simulation that was Championship Manager, plus the occasional budget challenger falling somewhere in between, as indeed Codemaster's PlayStation-targeted LMA Manager would do in its run from 1999 to 2007. Well, you've come to expect passing at this standard from these teams. They're showing some good passing and a lot of variation today. But it wasn't to be. Gremlin got acquired by a French entertainment giant, Infograms, which killed the series after the PS1-exclusive Premier Manager 2000. Zoo Digital brought it back from the dead a few years later, with a series of kind of crappy, low-budget, not-exactly-Premier-Manager-like games that sported the name and little else, only for the series to die again in 2008, and then be revived, only fleetingly, on two separate occasions since then. Once in 2011 on the PlayStation 3, and then again a few years later on mobile. I did play the mobile one, and it was actually all right. But the business model wasn't there, I guess. It was a horrible end to a once venerable, celebrated series. To a franchise that, in its heyday, had done better than any other at combining the pick-up-and-play fun of early games with the detail and depth expected in a world where fantasy sports are mainstream and hardcore sports fans demand a sort of authentic realism from their sports video games, including the friendlier, more accessible ones. But without the stability of a single dedicated development studio, backed by a publisher that trusts them to make a great game, Premier Manager never really stood a chance against Championship Manager. Sports Interactive steadily improved its simulation at both ends. A better, more intuitive interface, plus more realism, more stats, more depth every year. All of which combined to give you an ever-increasing sense that your decisions were making a difference to your team's fortunes, oh, what a good ball. both within a match and across the season. They even devised workarounds for the long wait times on the game's data crunching. Championship Manager 3 hit in 1999 with built-in multitasking that allowed you to actually do stuff, like player searches and, and training and tactics, while you waited for it to process the day's events. Critics and fans loved it, and even though for many it was deeper than they'd like, they found they could ignore a lot of the bits that dragged them down, like the customized training schedules and reserve team management. And by this point, you could play in just about any league in the world, and the text-only match engine had gotten so much better than all of the graphical alternatives that Chapman just couldn't be ignored. So little by little, year by year, game by game, this series took command of the genre. And by the time Sports Interactive split with publisher Eidos in 2005 to carry on the series with Sega under a new name, Football Manager, there really wasn't anything to meaningfully challenge it for the crown, except for perhaps Beautiful Game Studios' continuation of the Championship Manager brand for Eidos, in what was now a completely new series that just piggybacked on the name recognition, that even with that name recognition would also fail. 
And so as a result now, in 2019, Sports Interactive is the last man standing. Premier Manager is dead, as is Player Manager, which had limped along into the early 2000s. And PC Football, and LMA Manager, and everything else that took on Sports Interactive's hardcore simulation since it debuted in 1992. Which leaves me with this weird feeling that somehow the football management genre wars were kind of a real-world Highlander tale. There can be only one! But then I suppose all genre wars are a bit like that, especially when it comes to sport. It's kind of a winner-takes-all world. Compare the basketball, soccer, baseball, American football, golf, and tennis video game landscapes today to 25 years ago, and you'll see they all consist of a fraction as many games, played by an order of magnitude more people. Consolidation seems to be the way of the sports genre, and all its subgenres. And with that, we've sadly lost a huge amount of diversity in how we represent our favourite sports in virtual form. One or two interpretations of each sport now dominates. NBA 2K basically just owns the entire basketball game genre now. Or if you look at the non-management virtual soccer side, it's just FIFA and Pro Evo duking it out without any of their old competitors. The likes of Sensible Soccer, Actua Soccer, Sega Worldwide Soccer, This Is Football, Kickoff, and so many others, which had all sold in great enough numbers that they couldn't be ignored. And each of which had brought a different interpretation, a different philosophy of what matters in a sports simulation, as well as in the sport itself. Because, of course, they take their cue from the real thing. And I wonder sometimes what that means for those of us at home. How is this consolidation of sports video games changing how we understand our favourite sports? How does it change the way we play when we actually go out there and play the real thing? And for that matter, how does it change how professionals play? How does it change professional sport? And I worry that buried in this relentless quest for realism, for authenticity and perfection, Have we lost some of the joy of old? Or is it just hidden, wedged somewhere between the layers of tactics and statistics and pre-programmed skill moves? The Life and Times of Video Games is made entirely by me, Richard Moss, including all music and sound effects except for a few clips from the games and that highland a bit. This was the final episode of Season 2. I'll be back with Season 3, hopefully before the end of the year. But in the meantime, I can't stress enough how much it helps if you leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast apps are. And if you tell other people to listen to the show. And of course, if you can make a donation to help me carve out more time to work on the show, that helps as well. This season, I went with research-only episodes rather than the interview-driven format of season one, because that way I could cut a good 20 hours or so off the production time for each episode. But even without interviews, I'd say it took me around 30 hours an episode on average to do my research, writing, recording, editing, mastering, and scoring. So as much as I love to do it, this show is a huge time commitment that can be tough to justify at times. 
particularly as a freelance writer who could instead be using that time for paid work. So again, if you want to keep it going long term, like beyond the next 6 to 12 months, which is about as far as I can commit, I'm going to need either dozens more backers or thousands more listeners, or some combination of the two. So take a moment when you can to show your support one way or another. Reviews, social media, donations, whatever you can do. I'd like to extend a particularly big thanks to my Patreon backers. Most of you have been with me all year, if not longer, and I'm delighted to have your support and feedback. As always, special shout-out goes to my producer-level backers, Seth Robinson, Vivek Mohan, Simon Moss, and Wade Trigaskis. And thank you also to anyone who's ever emailed me or tweeted at me with feedback on the show. It wouldn't sound half as good as it does now without your help. So to wrap things up for another season, a reminder that you can make one-off donations via paypal.me slash mossrc and monthly recurring donations on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. Or if you can be bothered typing in the full URL, it's patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. You can also follow the show on YouTube and Instagram, as well as Twitter, on the Life and Times VG handle, where I'm trying, not particularly successfully, to post a bit more often. And as always, you'll find show notes and past episodes and everything else on the website lifeandtimes.games. Until next season, my name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thank you for listening. I'll see ya. Hey, this is Adam. This is Mike. And this is David. From Super Best Friends Video Game Sleepover. We make a fortnightly video game podcast. Fortnite means every two weeks. Covering gaming news, game reviews. I give it five out of five tacos. And whatever crazy audience tweets come in. And sometimes celebrities like Arnold even stop by to sing karaoke. Holy I love just like Each episode we feature one burning topic, game dev interview, or super guest friend from the world of gaming. Check us out on the HP Video Game Podcast Network or on sbfvgs.com. I don't care about that. Wow.